You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. This show may contain adult themes and language. This episode also contains brief mentions of violence and sexual assault. If you are sensitive to these topics, please practice self-care and proceed with caution. Listener discretion is advised. The following few paragraphs are from Chapter 1 of Miss Julia Miriam's fanfiction story titled Bow and Bend. The earliest days with Hawk are not easy by any definition of the word. The woman is a mage, and proud to be so. The last time Fenris saw so much casual use of magic was in the Imperium, and frankly it is not a comforting reminder. He flinches away from every wave of Hawk's hands, holds himself tense and silent, but it's impossible to disengage completely because she is beautiful and charismatic and gentle. No one has ever been gentle with Fenris before. He is, to most people, either a dog to be kicked or a sharp blade to be handled with care, but she treats him like a person, and he cannot hold himself entirely distant. She threw him off his guard right at the start, and he is never quite able to regain himself. He does his best. He is prickly and tense. He starts fights with her pet abomination. He bristles when her boundless compassion slides too close to pity for his comfort. He knows she pities slaves, and he uses that to hold back to keep his armor strong, to keep her from seeing his soft underbelly. But she slides her slender fingers through the cracks, and he wants. That is his downfall. It is the downfall of all slaves. Once there is something in the world you want, you cannot pull away, not fully. Wanting is a poison, one he had thought himself inured to by his tenure as Daenerys' pet, but apparently his immunity is not complete. That is the beginning, or perhaps the end. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest, I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest author today is Miss Julia Miriam. Miss Julia Miriam has been a member of AO3 since 2012. She has posted a total of 82 fanfictions in the following fandoms, Hades, DCU, Marvel, Star Wars, The Iliad, Naruto, Kuroku no Basuke, Kane and Fields, Critical Role, Young Avengers, Harry Potter, Dragon Age, Batman, and the Penumbra Podcast. Miss Julia Miriam is 24 years old from Canada and describes herself as a serious fandom hopper with the tendency to write very intensely for a specific fandom for a period of time, and then she moves on to a new one. She is currently most active in the Penumbra Podcast and Hades fandoms at the moment, and she is currently working on a long-fic Harry Potter canon rewrite project. When she isn't writing fanfiction, she likes to study ancient Greek literature. Miss Julia Miriam, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you. How are you? I'm good. I'm extremely pleased to be here. This is a huge honor to be invited, and I'm really excited to talk to you about my work and about fanfiction. Excellent. I'm so glad that you're here. Was there anything that you wanted to correct or add to your bio before we get started? Did I get that right? It all sounded good to me. One thing I would add is that 
although I've been on AO3 since 2012, I actually did exist for a brief period on fanfiction.net prior to joining AO3. So I've actually been reading and writing fanfiction even longer than that. Oh, so you remember the old school fanfiction.net like the rest of us old people. I was pretty young in my fanfiction.net days, but I was active there for a short while. And well, all I can say is that AO3 came as a blessing because fanfiction.net, you know, nostalgia is powerful, but it was not a good platform. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have my own opinions as well on fanfiction.net. I remember it fondly, but I exclusively only read fanfiction on AO3 these days for a variety of different reasons. And I'm sure that we can go back into your fanfiction days as we go on in the interview. But I do want to start for this interview at the very beginning Can you tell us about the time that you first discovered fanfiction? Do you remember how that felt? And do you remember what you liked about it? It was a really long time ago. I mean, I was probably, I would have been a preteen, I want to say kind of maybe 11 or 12. And my first memory of reading fanfiction, though it's possible that I'd found it other places before, was actually in like my DeviantArt days when I was still looking at fan art on DeviantArt a lot. And sometimes people used to post text works on DeviantArt as well. Obviously not as much as they posted visual art, but I pretty vividly remember reading fic on DeviantArt as like a little kid and just being so excited. Like I, I love fan art but I am not an artist and I have always been an avid reader. So it was really exciting for me to find literature about these characters that I loved. I I think I was probably reading, I want to say maybe Naruto fanfiction, because that was one of the things that I was really invested in at that age. Though (laughs) it was listed in my AO3 listing there. So as you can tell, I have not left that fandom. But yeah, I think that was probably the beginning. I remember being about that same age when I discovered fan fiction. So that's really interesting to me that there are other people who discover it at that young age as well. When did you first write your first piece of fan fiction? And do you remember what that experience was like? So that one's like a little harder for me to pin down. I've also been writing for most of my life. I grew up in a really literary family. My grandparents are both in publishing. My mom's a librarian. So... I started writing really, really young, and a lot of my very early literary efforts I, like, don't remember very well. My sense is that I actually did start writing fanfiction when I was probably, like, 10, and some of the first stuff I ever wrote might have been kind of self-insert kind of thing, like me or a character who very much resembled me meeting my favorite characters and, and getting to go into that world or having them, like, appear in my life and getting to interact with them. And then the first stuff that I posted, I want to say, was probably Twilight fanfiction. Shortly thereafter, I was probably 13. I remember when that became very popular. I don't remember what age I was. I think I was in college by that time. But my understanding is that did Twilight originate from fanfiction or people just compared it a lot to fanfiction? I can't really remember. 
Twilight didn't originate as fan fiction, though it did. I mean, it developed a massive fandom craze very quickly, though you might be thinking of of Fifty Shades of Grey, which was of Twilight fan fiction, which then got published. Yes, that's probably what I'm thinking of. I do remember when Twilight first came out, a lot of the critics compared it to, oh, you know, this is written kind of like fan fiction. How interesting. And then it just took off and people really seemed to like it and seemed to connect to it. So that's really interesting that you were writing in the Twilight fan fiction. Do you remember what you liked about the Twilight fandom? Yeah, I mean, for one, the thing about Twilight, on the one hand, this is a criticism of the books as a piece of literature. But at the same time, I think it's one of the reasons it was so easy to get into as a young girl is that Bella as a main character is very kind of blank slate. She's really easy to project on. And as somebody who considered myself kind of nerdy and uninteresting and who didn't think of myself as being very pretty or popular and also that it was set in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I live. And so it had these kind of similarities in some ways to my life. I wasn't super enchanted with Edward even back then. So I, it wasn't so much that I imagined myself in love with Edward, but I could easily see myself being friends with Alice, for example, the way that Bella becomes friends with Alice, Edward's sister. And the fantasy of having this beautiful boy fall desperately in love with you and being willing to kill or die for you. And just like, it's kind of a power fantasy for a preteen girl in some ways, especially a preteen girl who feels like nerdy and uninteresting in that way. So it was really easy to attach myself to that. And I think it's one of the reasons it felt so easy to start writing fic because there wasn't a huge expectation that I connect to grander literary themes. And also a lot of people writing fic in that fandom were my peers. So there was less, I don't know, judgment, I guess. Now, were you posting those Twilight stories on fanfiction.net? Yes, I posted a few. I don't think I ever posted a lot. I didn't write a lot in that fandom before I kind of started to move on, but I posted a few. I feel like I wrote a, a like a classic old school song fic where, you know, the characters have like a karaoke party or something and then they all sing along to song lyrics and there's just a million song lyrics in the text of the fic, which in hindsight is very embarrassing, but like a lot of people did it. It was a it was a popular kind of format and it was a lot of fun. It meant that I could share my favorite music and also project my taste in music onto the characters. Now, many of your later fan fiction stories are focused in the Dragon Age fandom. Yes. Can you tell us how you became involved in that fandom? Yeah, so I actually got involved in the Dragon Age fandom because of fan fiction. I can't say for sure, to be honest, what exactly it was that I first read. I just don't remember anymore. But I seem to recall that probably shortly after Dragon Age Inquisition came out, or shortly before Dragon Age Inquisition came out, maybe, that I kind of discovered the fandom and had started reading fan fiction in that fandom and kind of absorbed knowledge about it by osmosis. And then I got really invested. I actually think I got invested first in the character Cullen, who is a character in, in Inquisition. He's kind of a controversial figure, but I got really attached to him because I get really attached to characters with addiction recovery plot lines. That's just, it's something that really gets me. And that's kind of his character plot. So I got really involved and started writing fic in that 
part of the fandom and then finally got my hands on first Dragon Age 2, which I played, and then Dragon Age Inquisition, which I played, and then really started writing in the fandom more once I'd actually played the games. What was it about Dragon Age that really drew you in at that time? Well, I love fantasy and I love fantasy with interesting world building and that kind of has interesting politics going on in the world and stuff like that. And say what you will, and people have said all kinds of things about Bioware and their competence, let's say, in handling the, the concept of, of like gray morality and their world building. They do build in a lot of layers of complexity, even if sometimes the narrative it can be a little ham-fisted. And that sort of thing totally gets me. And the other thing is that Dragon Age, not only does it have fun world building, but it also has really good character-driven storytelling. So there are a lot of super compelling characters. And I don't know, it's just bait for me as a reader and as an author. That sounds like the type of content that would inspire a lot of fan works which I've seen there's a lot of Dragon Age fan fiction out there. And I always wondered, hmm, what is it about this particular fandom that is inspiring all of these authors to tell these stories? So that makes a lot of sense that they would have really character-driven content. Yeah, I think it's also that because Dragon Age, you have a player character who has not infinite choices for their characterization. So there's some limits, like the main character of Dragon Age 2, for example, is Hawk, who there are different ways to play Hawk, but they kind of boil down to basically three different basic personalities. But still, when you create your hawk, they're really your hawk. You can make a lot of decisions for yourself about who they are and why they are that way and what their relationships with all of the other characters are like. And so that creates a lot of room for authors in that you have a large ensemble of side characters with whom your central character has relationships and then the central character has some canon structure to their personality, which gives you something to go off of, but can be pretty significantly an OC. You still have a lot of creative control over what that character is like, what their relationships are like, what their views are. It's very fertile ground for fan storytellers. Now, speaking of characters, which characters in the Dragon Age fandom do you feel like you relate to the most and why? That I feel like I relate to the most or that I feel like I enjoy reading and writing about? Because those are different answers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Both. As far as who I relate to, I don't know. I relate to aspects of various characters in different ways. Like, I really love the character Meryl in Dragon Age 2. She's this fabulous mix of like kind of a nutty professor type who has slightly compromised research ethics, but at the same time is totally a really optimistic person who tries to make the best out of difficult situations, which is something that I aspire to. Her curiosity is something that I, I relate to a lot. And also even a character like Anders, also Dragon Age 2. I'm just going to continue to name Dragon Age 2 characters. I liked Dragon Age 2 and its stable of characters better than Inquisition for most of them. But like Anders is this extremely passionate activist. He, he believes really strongly in his cause and is willing very much to fight for it. Like that's something that I, again, that I really admire, that I kind of identify with. Interestingly, and you'll 
probably note amongst characters that I identify with, I'm not naming Fenris because I love Fenris. He is absolutely my favorite character, my favorite character to write about. He's super fun to write, but I simply do not relate to him. (laughs) I don't see myself in him at all. Yeah. He's kind of restrained in some ways. Like he has a short temper, but he he doesn't really feel any of his feelings other than anger, which is like the opposite of me in that I very rarely get angry, but I feel all of my other feelings all the time very openly. I'm not introverted in the way that he is. I've been very lucky to have a good life. I don't have a lot of trauma, which is something that really shapes his character. So even though I love writing him and I find him fascinating to write and even relatively easy to write, I really have nothing in common with him. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the Fenris character, and I'll just state for the listeners that everything that I know about Dragon Age comes from reading fanfiction. I started going into Dragon Age fanfiction because of the Fenris character. There was just something about him that really drew me in, so I'm not as familiar with actual canon. I see his character portrayed the most in slavery story arcs. And from what I understand, I believe that's canon. Is that canon? Yes. So Fenris's backstory in one sentence or less for anybody who isn't already familiar. He is an escaped slave from the fictional nation of Tevinter. He is an elf, and in Tevinter, a lot of elves are enslaved. The elvish population is largely enslaved, in fact. And Fenris, in particular, his sort of story is that he was the personal bodyguard and in Fanon, also kind of the body slave of a magister, a powerful mage and figure of political importance by the name of Daenerys. Tevinter is kind of roughly based on the Roman Empire. And Fenris, when he became Daenerys's slave, Daenerys put him through an experimental procedure that gave him these magical powers, essentially, but also erased his memories of his life before that point. So major part of his character is that all he remembers is being Daenerys's slave. He has no memory of being unenslaved if he was ever free. He doesn't know about it. And he really only remembers being in servitude to this person who really terribly abused him, which is something, yeah, that a lot of fan writers, fan authors pick up on, do stuff with. And that Daenerys is a terrible person. And and part of the arc in the game is, of Fenris's personal arc, is finally meeting and killing Daenerys, freeing Fenris once and for all. So that's something that actually happens in the game, and and it's very central to his character. I'm so glad that you gave us that little background on the Fenris character, because the story that we're going to talk about today, the, the story that you wrote, called Bow and Bend. Fenris is the central character in this story, and the slavery arc is a big part of his journey here. For someone who's never read your story before, if they were to ask you what that story is about, how would you describe that to them? Bow and Bend is partially a for want of a nail AU, uh, basically, what if one small thing were different? what would happen. And in this case, that small thing is in canon, when you romance Fenris, after the first night that he spends with Hawk, he kind of has a bit of a panic and leaves and they spend three years apart. 
I wanted to pick apart what would happen if Fenris didn't leave, if he and Hawk remained in a relationship. And in this story, that relationship eventually begins to break down. Fenris kind of leaves briefly to get some air, ends up getting kidnapped, getting thrown back into slavery, and has to escape again and essentially deal with deciding what freedom means to him and what it's going to take to really truly recover from the trauma of being enslaved and then enslaved again. Now, before we go any further into the story, I do want to mention to our listeners that this story does contain explicit scenes of non-consensual sexual violence. Those scenes are found in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Bow and Bend. So if you do want to avoid the explicit scenes for any reason, but still want to enjoy this story, please take note and go ahead and skip chapters 4, 5, and 6. You'll still get the basic gist of the story. The story really does deal more, I think, with themes of trauma and self-discovery from Fenris's perspective. So you'll still be able to get all of those story points by still skipping over those chapters. And I'll mention them again. It's chapters four, five, and six. You did mention a couple of minutes ago why you wanted to kind of pick apart that particular part of the story arc. Was there anything else that made you want to tell this particular story? It's interesting. This story in a lot of ways wasn't intended to be what it was. When I started writing Bow and Bend, I was expecting it to be kind of a couple thousand words of character introspection of like a Fenris who's who's trying to come to terms with the fact that he is in love with Hawk and wants to please her and wants to be pleasing to her because he cares about her. And what does that mean in the context of his past enslavement? Like, has he just re-enslaved himself, essentially? And obviously that's a problematic view of their relationship, and it's one that's very much informed by his past trauma. And not necessarily, like, it's not an objective view at all. A lot of the things that Fenris expresses about himself, his slavery, his relationship with Hawk, he's a very unreliable narrator in this story because he does have a lot of trauma. He has a lot of baggage. And this stuff is, it's hard to deal with. So I ultimately, when I when I started writing, I was intending to just like pick apart, oh, you know, a Fenris who kind of feels like he's become enslaved again, this time voluntarily by his regard for his lover and him kind of coping with that. And then he decided to go out of town and my brain was like, oh, but what if he got kidnapped and re-enslaved while they were having this fight that was just supposed to be like uh, them dealing with this thing in their relationship so it totally grew big plotty legs and ran away and then suddenly it was twenty five thousand words long and it needed a sequel do you remember how you chose this title of this specific work so the series title is willow which so one of the things i was thinking about was like kind of themes of artificial versus natural or acceptable kind of bending to pressure things that yield and things that don't it's something i was thinking about a lot when i was writing it and then the other thing is i'm just thinking about like bowing as in yielding to pressure and but then bending as in bending rather than breaking that the idea being that fenris 
has had to bend a lot in his life to a lot of different pressures and has either been forced to bend or has willingly bent to certain pressures again because of things like his regard for hawk that he was willing to bend to her will in a lot of circumstances that he might not otherwise but none of that has broken him that actually he does still have a very much has a will of his own and his own principles and his own mind about stuff those were all just themes i was digging into when i chose the title oh i love that answer because now with that answer in mind you know, I've read this story so many times because it's one of my favorites, but now I just have more of an appreciation now for the title because you're right, it fits in so well with the thematic elements of the story here. Now, in talking to different authors spread around in different fandoms, I have come to understand that there are various approaches to writing. So if you can think back for us just a little bit here with this particular work, do you remember what your process is? Did you start out with an outline? Did you have to do a lot of research? Or are you one of those folks that just kind of dives right in and then sees where the story takes you? These things vary. Certainly in this case, because this was not intended to be a long thick, it was supposed to be short. I was like not prepared at all for it. And this one definitely took shape. It just kind of happened. It took shape as I was writing it. I can't remember exactly. This was, of course, a number of years ago. I've done a lot of writing since then. I believe that as I went on in the series, so this fic does have a couple of sequels, one that is a collection of shorter stories that bridge in kind of vignettes that bridge the gap in the canon timeline between Dragon Age 2 and Dragon Age Inquisition, there's a couple of years gap in the timeline. And then the kind of second big main part in the series covers some of the events of Dragon Age Inquisition. And as I moved on in the series, I did start to kind of do more preparation because for one, I needed to play the early parts of Dragon Age Inquisition with the Inquisitor that I created for this world state, the Inquisitor that is portrayed in Heroes, which is the third part of the series after the middle bit. There's like Bow and Bend, and then Time Will Tell, which are the short stories, and then Heroes. And Nirem Lavellan, the Inquisitor in Heroes, I created as a character just for this world state because I wanted an Inquisitor with a connection to Fenris. And so I needed to play the early part of Inquisition to kind of get a handle on his character a little bit, think about his relationships with those characters, and also to figure out where Fenris was going to fit in, because Fenris does not appear in Dragon Age Inquisition in the canon. I had to figure out how that was going to work. So I planned the second and third parts more. The first part just all appeared in a rush with no planning <laughs> by accident. And then it just kind of went off from there. It's a beautiful series. I really encourage people to go in and take a look and experience it because it really is so beautiful. I had this question as I was reading it again to prepare for this interview. How long has Fenris been free when Bowen Bend begins? Okay, I have to like access my canon memories. So it's a little bit ambiguous in the canon timeline, I believe. Unfortunately, one of the things about Fenris, of course, is that he doesn't remember his early life. So his own sense of like how old he is and how long he was a slave and stuff like that, it's all a little muddled. And canon also leaves some gaps. So he escapes 
Daenerys and flees to Venter not that long before the beginning of Dragon Age 2. He's like being hunted by slave hunters when you meet him in the game and is like squatting in a manner in the town. He's still kind of in, in rough straits as far as that goes and, and quite new to freedom. And then Bowenbend kind of elides what is in the game a three-year time skip between when you first romance Fenris and the second act of the game or the third act of the game. And I can't remember exactly what I said as to how long he and Marion, Marion Hawk, the hawk in this world state, are actually together when the main plot of Bow and Bend picks up. Because they stay together after that first night that they spent together, and I frankly can't remember. But suffice to say, Fenris has been free at most three or four years, I want to say. Got it. Yeah, and I was just wondering that because the story starts out, as you say, diving right in to the relationship dynamic between Fenris and Hawk. And you can tell right away, and you do such a beautiful job of showing us Fenris's thought process here, because he displays some incredibly codependent behaviors that are obviously rooted in trauma, you know, so we can kind yeah. of understand where you know, his reactions and his thought process is coming from. And I was just wondering how long he had experienced freedom before diving right in, right, to this relationship yeah. with Hawk. And this is the root of the what if that I was exploring, is that in canon, again, they spend some time getting to know each other, developing a relationship, I want to say maybe about a year or so. And then in the game, what happens is is you can kind of essentially advance the romance Hawk and Fenris sleep together and then Fenris, he kind of dreams of some stuff from his past and then sort of panics and bails. And then he and Hawk spend at that point another three years being friends and companions and fighting together, but not actually engaged in a romantic relationship. And then in the third act, you can re-engage in a relationship with him after he's had some time on his own to begin to process that and continue to process his trauma and learn who he is as an independent person. And so I was picking at what happens if he doesn't have that time? How does that relationship develop if he doesn't have that time on his own after understanding that a romance is a possibility for him? Yeah, like I, I think jumping into an intense romantic relationship of that kind when you still haven't really processed your trauma is probably not a very good idea. So that was that was what I was pulling on and and it is a lot for him. He ends up in a relationship with another character later on in the series. That's a bit of a spoiler, though I won't say who with for those who wanna get in there themselves. But it's very much after he's had more time to figure out who he is independent of another person which isn't something that he's had in Bow and Ben. Right. And that's one of the things that I found so fascinating about Bow and Ben, because you can absolutely tell just from his thought process that he has not processed the things that have happened to him and has no idea who he is or how to be an independent person. As you say, I was reading his perspective and thinking, wow, that behavior really seems to come from a place of longing for familiarity and the safety of what he's familiar with. So maybe intellectually he knows he wants to be free, but emotionally he's looking for something familiar and he ends up with Hawk. 
Yeah, and for something safe. This is canon, that, that Hawk is the one who liberates him, protects him from slave hunters on their first meeting, and literally protects him from being recaptured. And then later on, again, canonically, Hawk, he or she can, as part of the romance, can teach Fenris to read, which is a significant thing to give someone as part of their journey toward independence but that's something that he gets from hawk and so yeah their relationship can be potentially very codependent even though fenris is so vitriolic towards you know he hates slavers he's really i mean he he freed himself he fled he really wants to be free he's fought for his freedom but I don't necessarily think that fighting for freedom in that way will necessarily get you all the way to complete emotional independence in that way. There's work to be done. And and that, you know, that's just psychology. It's hard. It's hard to process trauma that is that intense, that lifelong. Yeah. I completely agree with you 100% on that. I was also equally fascinated at the beginning of the story regarding Hawk's behavior towards Fenris, because obviously we understand to a certain degree why Fenris is behaving the way he's behaving. But Hawk at some point does realize that she is playing into this for him a little bit. And I'm unfamiliar with the canon character, so I thought, well, maybe there's something there I'm not aware of. Can you tell us where Hawk's behavior towards Fenris in your story may have come from? Because she seems almost equally codependent, you know, with Fenris a little bit. And I was just wondering where that was coming from. Yeah, I'll note for the record, like, Hawk is the player character and can be role-played in several different ways in the game. And obviously in my own fiction, outside of the bounds of canon dialogue choices, which of course are pretty limited, Hawk can be really any kind of character. So I was definitely writing a Hawk who had her own insecurities and her own ignorances about how to deal with this. Like the fact that she doesn't step back when she kind of realizes like that just is it comes from the place of you know she's also relatively young and not a perfect person and there's kind of two things for one hawk has this is true of all hawks that they come from another country to kirkwall as refugees and have kind of come from the bottom and worked their way up to a place of wealth and privilege and still don't really know how to deal with that and also all of their friends have all kinds of crazy, intense personal problems. And there's a lot of really insane politics that Hawk ends up getting wrapped up in. She has a lot of stuff going on. She's she's dealing with a lot and she wants the comfort of the man that she loves. The other thing is that she is a mage, which mages are quite kind of oppressed in the Dragon Age setting, which you probably at least somewhat aware of, other than in Tevinter, where... Fenris is from where the mages run everything and so Hawk who has had to hide being a mage her entire life so that she doesn't get thrown into a horrible institution and like probably terribly abused herself almost put into a position of slavery versus you know who who has that association with being a mage and, and living that kind of fear 
Versus Fenris, who's used to being enslaved by mages, it's a point of conflict. And it's also a point of kind of incompatible personal dysfunction between the two, where if they don't take the time to really work it out between themselves, I'm of the opinion that uh, there can be some real problems between these characters. Not every author digs into this stuff, but plenty do. And it's certainly something that I was thinking about writing this, and I made the conscious choice to have Hawk be a mage because she because she's a mage, thinks of herself as an oppressed person. But Fenris, because she's a mage, views her like she's very much an example of his oppressors and traumatizers. And that dichotomy creates a difficult dynamic in their relationship that neither of them is negotiating very well at the start of the story, which is one of the things that causes the big fight between them. That's where that's at. I love how you chose to have Fenris at some point recaptured by slavers. I was thinking that you could have just easily had him take a little trip out to the woods and meet the chargers or yeah, know, there could have been a, a dozen different ways that you could have done that. But you chose deliberately, I'm sure, to have him recaptured by slavers. And I thought that that was such a symbolic choice for this story, because not only does it force Fenris to confront the thing that he hasn't really processed yet, his life in slavery, it serves as a uh, like a rebirthing point for him, if that makes sense. They say that the lessons that you don't learn well will come back to you in life eventually. And I feel like that's almost what happens here. He ends up back in slavery. The Chargers find him. And now he has this new opportunity to process his trauma and grow as an individual in ways that he wasn't able to do the first time. Yeah, it serves to concretize something that is kind of happening for him emotionally with Hawk. Obviously, Hawk hasn't enslaved him again. She does love him. She cares for him deeply. But she also, she doesn't want to hurt him. She would never abuse him. She would never ask him to do things that were abhorrent to him personally, in part because she knows that he also cares for her and his mode of showing devotion is this kind of subservience. It's something she's aware of and she's uncomfortable with, but she doesn't know how to fix it. And Fenris, of course, has fallen back into this same pattern of devotion that he learned as a slave without really knowing of another way to exist. And so him actually concretely falling back into slavery, like truly becoming enslaved again and coming into the hands of somebody who will abuse him, who will force him into that subservient mindset and who will take full advantage because that's what they want is a slave. It creates a contrast first of all, with Hawk and his relationship with Hawk, but it also brings fully into focus for Fenris where he's been, where he is now, and what it would really mean to truly get away from it. And it reminds him in some ways of how strongly he objects to being enslaved and to being in that mindset of how easily it can be abused and allows him to kind of confront his own feelings about it and reconfront his own opposition to being enslaved. It's forcing him to deal with his past and also his present and with the feelings that he, something that he expresses in the story 
is this feeling that he'll never be able to escape, that this is part of who he is to a degree where he'll always be a slave, that being subservient is who he is. And if he hadn't been reminded that in fact being subservient is in fact anathema to him, that he hates it so much that it feels abusive, even when it comes from someone who does love him and who doesn't intend to harm or abuse him in any way, it's a reminder to him that in fact that's not who you are. That being resigned to a situation that you hate is not the same as actually accepting something as part of your life and your personality and your destiny, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. And I'm so glad that you went there because one of the things that I was so impressed by when reading this story is the fact that you do make it very nuanced for Fenris here because he does find a certain amount of familiarity and comfort in being subservient and in being a slave. But he also realizes that there are probably greater interpersonal rewards for the hard work that comes from separating himself from that and from being free. But I loved that it was such a nuanced decision for him. There's a line that you put in chapter 7, and I was hoping I could read it out here just for a second because it's one of my favorite parts of the entire story. He's talking to Iron Bull, and Iron Bull is asking him, well... Do you want to be free? Do you not? Like, what do you want? You know? And I've never experienced what Fenris has experienced, but my first thought would be, well, of course he wants to be free. Like, who doesn't want to be free, right? But for him, it's this very difficult decision that he's consciously making. And finally, he just looks up at Iron Bull and he says, you know what? I'm done. If that means I must kill a part of me that has made me myself all my life, then so be it. I cherish the thing that makes me a slave less than the thing that makes me wild cut me free. I really loved writing Iron Bull in this fic because the Iron Bull at this point in particular pre-inquisition he's Cunari so he's a both both by race and by creed he's Cunari which means that he is an adherent of a religion that very strongly advocates kind of submitting to like the flow of the world and suffering just exists and the way to not suffer is to let the tide come and go and that this creed it assigns very early in life roles to people for them to perform based on their aptitudes and conditions people extremely strongly, uh, like psychologically conditions people into those roles to the point where your role is like people don't have names other than their title and so on. And the Iron Bull at this point in his life is very much an adherent of that belief system. He really believes in that, that that is the way to live. Like he is still a servant of that creed and performing his role as assigned as he's been conditioned to do and believes that to break away from his role will cause him to lose his mind. But he is now sitting here faced with someone who absolutely needs to be independent. Or rather, he's looking at this person and thinks he's willing to let this person decide what they need, right? Like this elf on the ground in front of him is a slave, is clearly very much enslaved in multiple ways, both in mind, in the way that he thinks about himself and physically in terms of what he's enduring. And so the Iron Bull is, yeah, like he makes this decision that this person needs to decide what they can accept, essentially. 
contrasting Bull and the way that he thinks about obedience and identity compared to Fenris and the way that Fenris thinks about obedience and identity and the way that Fenris is thinking about obedience and identity right now. He was the perfect character to do this whole thing, like his perspective. And he was the perfect character to have Fenris meet after this ordeal and to be the person to help Fenris recover. I was so glad to be able to do that. I truly think I'm so sad that in canon, these characters have not met. I think they would have a lot to say to each other. <laughs> so it's a really great dynamic. It's one that I really like and that I wish people wrote in fanfiction more often because I love these two characters together. I think they're fascinating contrast. And this scene, writing this scene, thinking about it, it is all of my thoughts and feelings about these two distilled. I am so glad that you brought them together in the story because I feel like he had a lot to give to Fenris in the moment when he needed it the most. And I'm so glad that you gave us that little background on the Cunari. I didn't know any of that. And it did make me wonder, not having that background information when I was reading it, you know, I always wondered what the Chargers were able to give to Fenris that Hawk wasn't able to. Yeah, part of it is that the Chargers are a mercenary company and they travel around, they take the jobs that they want to take, and they have a freedom that Hawk does not have. Hawk is tied down in Kirkwall. She has familial entanglements. She has political entanglements. She has her other friends that have all of these complicated issues that she's always involving herself in. She's very tied down herself in a lot of ways. And so Fenris doesn't have the freedom with her to just go if he needs to. That is a real material difficulty, I think, for him in some ways that he is in some ways quite trapped in Kirkwall with her. And the Chargers just aren't. They go where they will. They're a motley and diverse group. And the other thing is that the Iron Bull is a Kunari, but the other members of the Chargers aren't. They know that he is a Kunari, in fact, specifically that he is a Kunari spy, that the reason that he's running a mercenary company is that he's like out in the world collecting info for the Kun about what's going on in the rest of Thetis and sending back reports. And they like know that. And at least to some degree, I, I sort of am of the belief that they know that. And he just is tolerant of them and they are tolerant of him. And it's this kind of mellow group of just like mercenary jackasses who aren't really super attached to any one particular thing in the world necessarily or that all of them are connected to different things and they all have their own traumas and don't necessarily feel the need to inflict them on each other in the way that Hawk and her kind of gang of friends do that they all just end up involving each other all the time in each other's problems which is not really what Fenris needs in this moment. He needs the freedom to just kill some bandits or some giant spiders or whatever and not talk about his feelings for like five minutes. <laughs> they were, and also that they were able to give him the space to reconceptualize himself without that pressure of being involved with people who are themselves like all wrapped up in their own shit all the time. That makes so much sense. <laughs> oh. Now, I know that you posted and wrote this story quite some years ago. I think this was 2015. I know I'm asking you to think all the way back here, but do you remember some of your favorite responses to this story? 
You know, I thought of, I thought about this a bit. I, I definitely got some great comments. A friend of mine, actually, a good friend of mine who I have had an enduring friendship with in these past five years, the two of us actually met because she started leaving long comments on each chapter of Boundbent. And we started talking in the comments section and then talking elsewhere, like on Tumblr. And yeah, we we remained friends. So that is something that like very much is it's quite a meaningful result of this fic. And then I guess the other one would be this fic once got put on a rec list by an author that I really look up to. If you read a lot of Fenris-centric stuff in the Dragon Age fandom, you might have come across Loquacious Cork who is a pretty prolific and prominent author in the fandom, in the, the DA2 fandom. And she recommended it in a rec list on her Tumblr blog and started the review with the phrase, recommending this fic is a bit like wrecking a loaded gun, which is a compliment that has stuck with me all these many years. <laughs> this fic is so much like, it's really intense. It deals with very difficult material. It's quite emotionally heavy and explicit so it is in some ways it's a risky thing to wreck but that she liked it and was willing to recommend it anyways despite all of that it was really meaningful to me now i understand that these days yes you are involved in other fandoms aside from dragon age so i was wondering if you could tell us really quick yeah so i most recently i've gotten quite involved in the hades fandom Hades, it's a video game by Supergiant Games. Super, super good. I highly recommend everyone play it. It is honestly like 2020's best game, in my opinion. Obviously, more like serious gamers than me might have different opinions, but whatever. So fun. And also very much based on Greek mythology, classical myth, classical literature, and that is like, that's what my degree is in. That is super my area of interest and my area of knowledge. And the game is just like, it's really well researched. There's lots of little fun nods to little bits of interesting trivia. I'm of the opinion that they handle the mythological material really well. They do interesting stuff with the classical characters. And also, it's just good and gay. And listen, if you show me a super fun game with an easy mode and Greek mythology and also just like the world's biggest buy energy, obviously it's going to be my favorite game. <laughs> I am 100% invested. And so I've started writing fic for that and don't anticipate that I'll be stopping for a good while because I have a lot of feelings about Achilles to inflict on the world. I did my dissertation about Achilles and now I get to write fan fiction about him and people will actually read it. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> and then, yeah, the other fandom that I'm quite involved in right now is the Penumbra podcast fandom, which it's a delightful, like a radio drama podcast. There are two different serial storylines, Juno Steel and The Second Citadel. I particularly write for Juno Steel, which is like sci-fi noir about a non-binary private eye on Mars by the name of Juno Steel, whom I love. It's just a really good fandom. I've remained involved in part because I've made a lot of friends in the fandom. It's a good community and it's a good podcast. People should listen to it. It's very good. That sounds delightful. For the folks out there who want to check that out, check that out. 
Now, what projects are you working on now? I know you mentioned Harry Potter. So I am currently working on a Penumbra fic that I can't talk about in too much detail because it's actually for the annual Penumbra Minibang event, which we're not supposed to talk in too much detail about our projects before they get revealed at posting, but that'll be a Juno Steel fic. So I'm writing that. And then I'm also working on, yes, a Harry Potter project. Obviously, in this house, we do not respect JK Rowling, fuck turfs, etc. However, this is my city now, and I will simply be going ahead and rewriting the entire series aggressively to reflect what I think would happen if Neville Longbottom had been the boy who lived instead of Harry Potter. Interestingly, this project is also probably maybe even more than five years old. A friend of mine and I started brainstorming like, Neither of us really likes a lot of sort of darker Harry Potter AUs. A lot of them trend in this kind of edgy, dark direction and often involve a lot of weird mischaracterization, which some are good, but there's also a lot that neither of us particularly likes. And so we got into this kind of what if match. What if we wrote the dark Harry Potter AU that we actually want? And so we spun out this extremely elaborate, long-form kind of rewrite AU. We started writing it together, actually. They wrote part of the very first chapter of what would eventually become The Throne Pebble, which is the first book in the series. And then I took over the writing about three, three and a half years ago, something like that. And I have just been plugging away at it, and I expect that I will still be plugging away at it probably another three years from now, because I am currently about 50,000 words into book four. Book three is almost completely posted. Book three is written and almost completely posted. Book four is about a third written. And yes, I do fully intend to eventually finish rewriting the entire series, because I hate myself, apparently. <laughs> yes, and it is actually for once, I did in fact sit down with a full outline of the whole project. It is it is very intentional. So I do believe in my heart that I will eventually finish it. It's just going to take some time. Now, what advice would you give to the younger or less experienced writers out there who are just starting out? I think that finishing things is a learned skill. It's something that you have to practice. Nobody is going to be good at finishing things when they start out as a writer because it's actually really hard, not least because no writer is ever really happy with the quality of their own writing. And if you are, somebody needs to pop your overinflated head with a pin. However, I think it's possible to be happy enough and finding that place where you are happy enough with what you've done to feel like it's finished, to put it out there. Yeah, that takes some doing. And one of the things that you need to learn to be happy enough is to learn how to finish things, in my opinion. I don't think that my style as an author started settling out until I learned how to finish stuff. I was in high school, I want to say, hmm, I guess probably maybe 11th grade, like uh, spring of 11th grade when I finished the first draft of an original novel project that I'd been plugging away at for a couple of years. And that fall, I won NaNoWriMo for the first time. And shortly after that, I really started to notice that my writing style was beginning to stabilize to a point where I actually liked what I was producing, that it felt like my work rather than something that 
was only an approximation of what I was trying to produce. Okay, so you felt like learning to finish a project was the catalyst. Yeah, and I think part of it is that obviously I was learning other skills at the same time as I was learning how to finish stuff, that I was for the first time creating products that I could feel satisfied with and therefore feel like they were done. I really think that pushing yourself to actually get all the way from the beginning to the end of something, it's a good exercise, even if it's something short. It's a good exercise to be able to put a period at the end of a piece of work and go, okay, the end, like I'm done now. Because for one, then you're forced to edit. If it's finished, you have to read it back and think about what you've done. And for two, instead of just eternally re revising the first sentences and going, oh, that wasn't what I meant it to look like. That wasn't what I meant to say. To just understand that, like, it's never going to turn out exactly how it is in your head, but you can decide that even if it wasn't exactly how it is in your head, it's more or less what you intended. And so now you can refine. And then also it takes effort to not be so stuck on the beginning that you never get to the end. And I have friends who never finish creative works because they're very perfectionist about their own work and they are eternally revising the start. And that's totally understandable. Like I have been there, but something that I've had to learn in order to get anywhere with my writing is to just decide that what I have is good enough for the moment. And if I read it back later and still think I hate it, I can edit it. But for the time being, it's fine. And often you read it back later and you go, actually, it is fine. I have written so many things that when I was working on them or when I read them right after I finished writing, I've been like, oh, this is garbage. And then I read it again like a couple weeks later and was like, actually, I was being too hard on myself. This is not exactly what I imagined when I first sat down to write this, but that doesn't mean that it's bad writing. It's actually fine. I love that advice. That's wonderful advice for the new writers and the younger ones. How would you answer this? And I call it an existential question, but what is fan fiction to you? See, this is such a hard question to answer. My academic brain wants to give a really technical answer, which is that to me, fan fiction is a form of literature. And anybody who says it isn't is a snob. The brain that lives in my heart says that, to me, fan fiction is an act of love, as much as any fan work is. It is a manifestation of all of the time that we spend thinking about things that we love. All of us in fandom spend a lot of time thinking about these characters, having feelings about them, projecting on them. We all spend so much time and energy processing media that we enjoy and thinking about it either critically or just in an enjoyment kind of way. And fan fiction is writing requires the articulation of your thoughts and feelings, which can be really difficult. And I think that that anybody does this is just proof that we all love this media so much. We care about it so much that we are willing to spend hours and hours and hours of our lives writing this stuff, getting our feelings out, and that other people spend hours and hours and hours reading them and reliving their own feelings and processing them again and thinking about this stuff from new angles and discovering new characters and new worlds. Reading fanfiction 
for media that you love or reading fan fiction for media that you're not familiar with, like both, it can be the source of a lot of discovery and a lot of evolution and learning as far as what you like about stuff and also just your own skills. I mean, almost everything I've learned about writing, I've learned from writing fan fiction and from reading fan fiction and as much as from reading anything. And so that's just, it's so much time that we put in. And I think that's amazing. Like, that's crazy. I think those are beautiful reasons why fan fiction is worth writing and also worth reading. So thank you. Last question of the day. Who are your top three AO3 authors? This tends to kind of change. And I also hop fandoms a lot. So this is going to be a selection of authors that I am either reading right now or like thinking about a lot right now. So one of them I will say is Flamethrower, who is an absolutely incredible, she's been writing a lot in the Harry Potter fandom recently, but I found her work and my favorite works of hers are her Star Wars works. She's the author of an incredible time travel AU, like Clone Wars era time travel AU. It's more than a million words long and I've read it like four times, if that tells you anything. So I come back to her work a lot. I have recently been thinking a lot about and really enjoying the work of an author named Sisray, S-Y-S-R-A-E, who I found through the Check Please fandom. They're the author of a couple of really incredible Check Please fics, which Check Please is a webcomic about hockey. And they have recently gone over into the MDZS or the Untamed fandom, which I just recently started reading in that fandom, and there's some incredible stuff there. And then, hmm, you know, I'm gonna go with a classic, and I'm gonna say Copper Badge, who, if you talk to Marvel people at all, his name might come up again, because he's been around in fandom for a really long time. He's been around since the live journal days and is really quite a very prominent and established author, particularly in the Avengers fandom. But in other fandoms too, he's the author of a really iconic Harry Potter fic. He's the author of my favorite white collar fic of all time. His work is just so good. His writing is amazing. He writes really neat stuff, funny stuff, heartbreaking stuff. I don't know. I just love his work and I think everybody should read it. Those are my top three. Two that are kind of bigger or well-known in their fandoms and one who I think deserves more love. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you so much for that. That does conclude my questions for today. Miss Julia Miriam, do you have any last words for us? You know, I said it earlier, I think fan fiction is literature, but I don't necessarily think of myself as one of the great authors. I just shook my fist emphatically. Please imagine the great authors kind of ironically capitalized or something like that. But I do care a lot about my work and I care a lot about fan fiction as a genre and, and as a category of fan work. And I'm really grateful that you're doing this work to bring more recognition to authors, big and small, because we all love fandom. And I do think there's a lot of burnout among fan fiction authors. It's hard to get feedback sometimes. And knowing that people are out there reading and appreciating what we do, it means a lot. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's absolutely my pleasure. Miss Julia Miriam, thank you so much for joining us today. Folks, check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. Please stay safe and do heed the warning tags. If you'd like to reach out, I can be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. 
Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.